Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast, the UK's only hunting and countryside podcast brought to you every two weeks on demand. It is indeed. If you don't know all the places it can be found, you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and TuneIn Tune Radio. Radio. Yeah. So there's no excuse for not listening. And we have, uh, every month, we keep growing. We have more and more people listening every month, so must be doing something right. We must be. <laughs> Two weeks ago, we ran a competition to win a bipod, a Coldwell tilting bipod. You had to tag a friend on Facebook uh, or send us a, uh, an email. We had quite a lot of entrants, and we've gone through and randomly selected them, as we always do, unless we're looking for pretty pictures, and then we make a judgment call. Yep. And this week's winner is Paul Wilkie. So, Paul, get in touch. We know uh, Paul actually does live in the pretty local area to us, so get in touch and maybe you can actually pick it up in person. Yeah, and we can take a picture and plaster all over Facebook. <laughs> yep. We've got a new competition to win Coldwell shooting sticks. They are collapsible traveling uh, buy sticks, and they're there for you to win. All you've got to do is enter, and to enter, you have to do this. You've got to go on Instagram. So, I'm sorry, we're actually closing this one to only Instagram users. And if you don't know what Instagram is, it is uh, a picture app. And it's, that's all you can do on it is look at pictures and you take pictures and upload it. Uh, we've got quite a few followers on there now. And we know for a fact there is quite a few of our followers that listen to this show. So, all you need to do is tag us in your best outdoor picture, doing anything you want, camping, fishing, shooting, walking your dogs, you name it, tag us in it, and we're just going to pick the best picture. Simple as that. And to tag us, it is pace underscore brothers. Yep. You've got to get that right, otherwise we're not going to be able to see the picture. (laughs) So, good luck with that, and we will announce the winner in two weeks' time. We have an interim podcast coming up uh, for our listeners who have been listening since we started this podcast. We haven't done that many, but we've done a handful um, between the, the normal podcast that comes out every two weeks. Covers news topics. Anything that's happened in the last sort of seven, eight weeks, we're going to talk about it, discuss it, debate it. That's going to be on Thursday, the 21st of this month, 21st of July, 2016. Sometime in the latter part of the day. Yeah, you'll be able to listen to it on whatever you're listening to it right now because we'll upload it as we always do but for those people who are Facebook users keep an eye out on our Facebook podcast page which is Podcast Into the Wilderness because we will also live stream it at the same time which does give you the opportunity to interact a little by sending in um, comments Comments, so we'll be able to read out your names if you want to shout out yeah and so, you can actually join in in the, the yeah, topics yeah, as you, well. If you've, if you've got uh, something to say about whatever it is that we're talking about, then you can fire that over and we'll read it out. Mm-hmm. So that should be quite exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, we'll be good. This is a long podcast this week. Uh, and for that reason, we have split it into two, two lots of one and a half hours. Um, Daryl wasn't actually there when I did this podcast. I traveled down to Glasgow to the police headquarters um, to interview Chief Inspector Fraser Lamb and the sergeant for policing and strategy, Andy Kirkwood, along with the director of SACS, Alex Stoddart, who you've heard from before on this podcast. Uh, We are talking about everything firearms licensing. So everything from drink driving convictions, the various ways that you can get your license revoked, what you can do or if it's possible to get your license back, mental health issues, 
Um, air weapons licensing uh, is also talked about. And probably most importantly, you get to find out a little bit about the people at the top of the uh, top of the chain. You know, those people who are there and deciding who gets what and whether you are basically entitled to have a, a shotgun uh, or a And the people license. ultimately making the final decisions. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. That's that's where it gets passed on to if it uh, if the decision needs to go to a higher level. And it may surprise you. I think everybody will be pleasantly surprised um, at the sort of the tone and the discussion that's had. It was a really useful debate. I learned a lot by having a discussion, and it was uh, it was an absolute pleasure to uh, go and ro- record the podcast over there. We do hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget that this podcast is supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Enjoy. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, it's great to have this opportunity to have uh, everyone on the podcast. Um, we've heard from from Alex before. He's he's been on the on the podcast, and our, our listeners uh, know a little bit about him. But it would be great to hear um, from from you, Andy, and Fraser about your backgrounds. So if I could start with you, Fraser, just tell us sort of your um, truncated life story as to getting into the police and then your sort of career progression to where you are today. Right, okay, well, I kind of joined the police when I was a young boy at 21 and then uh, I kinda, it was the old legacy Strathclyde and, and worked in a number of territorial divisions throughout Strathclyde in a number of roles, but uh, predominantly I was in the CID. Uh, spent a long uh, detective constable, DS, DI within the the, uh, the criminal investigation department and a whole variety of roles. Uh, and then probably the last five years I was a uh, commander at Drumchapel and then I came into licensing uh, and I was allocated firearms licensing which was a bit like a busman's holiday. Uh, someone asked me, uh, what do you do every day? And I said, I read about my hobby. Uh, I have been... Uh, I've been brought up uh, to shooting, probably dragged along going to shoot ducks at night with my dad, probably around about age five when I struggled through a barley field. Uh, that was probably my earliest uh, memories of uh, of shooting. But my dad came from a country background. Grandpa was a... Uh, he was a gamekeeper. Uh, his father was a gamekeeper. My grandpa actually died when he was out shooting. Uh, so it's absolutely... And I've, I'm in ingrained or it's my passion I do a lot of rough shooting and uh, do a lot of beating, do a lot of picking up and so on so the only thing that gets in the way is the work So, uh, so it's, it's pretty much a perfect fit for you then being in, in firearms yeah. license uh, Well yes, uh, I think it's I think it brings uh, positives and negatives insofar as that I understand where people are coming from but the other side of that is that you can sit there and really say my head doesn't zip up the back, I've been doing this for a wee while and that wouldn't happen or that doesn't happen. And maybe, probably be able to understand the context of why people use firearms, uh, the, the importance it is to them, and uh, what, but the other side of that is, what's my job? My job is to keep people safe, and that's it. And just to give people an idea, what does your job actually entail, and what does a, sort of a week look like for you, if there is such a thing as an average week? Uh, there's definitely no such thing as an average week. Uh, I think one of just that's for every police officer. I think and member of police staff who works for pl- for anywhere in the police, you, you never know what comes along. But in essence, my job is the efficient, effective, and economic management of the firearms licensing system for uh, Police Scotland. That 
means that in essence I've got 52,000 account holders, uh, we manage their certification in and out, they apply for a certificate, uh, we review it, make sure it's all right, not me personally but the staff and uh, so I've got oversight of that, how do we actually do that, what's our policy, what's our intention in relation to do that and then as I say, I, I can equate it almost to like somebody who works in the building society or whatever, I've got the certificates they want to move guns, change guns about, and all that sort of thing. It's deposits, it's taken out, and how do we manage that? And how do we manage that risk? Because uh, fundamentally, if you give someone a gun, there's a risk, right? And that's why we have a certification process. Thankfully, the vast, vast, vast majority of the people who I deal with, it's a tiny wee risk. Law-abiding, respectful of the law, and don't cause me any, any hassle or grief. Uh, but when it does, and there is challenges, contentious matters or so on, well, that's also part of my role in relation to deal with these matters. That's brilliant. Well, we're going to get into that in mm, a little bit more absolutely. detail shortly. If I could just uh, come over to you, Andy, and kind of ask you the same question, a bit of your life story and how you got into the police and what you actually do, what's your role today? Well, I joined the police when I was 25. Uh, again, like Fraser, the old Strathclyde Force, uh, based in Glasgow City Centre. Uh, I've been in the police now for 16 years, uh, doing a variety of roles from operational policing, uh, basically driving the cars and attending 999 calls, to such areas as crime prevention, uh, public order and other specialist roles. I was working with antisocial behaviour teams with uh, Glasgow Housing Authority, so a, variety, a wide variety of roles uh, before I, I came with Fraser into firearms licensing. Uh, my role is I am the sergeant in charge of the policy and strategy unit and what we do there is look at national processes, uh, look at national decisions, uh, certainly coming from uh, a point of Police Scotland being formed. We had various different localised processes and policies and it was basically amalgamating them together and taking them forward that it was one system throughout Scotland. Uh, and that's what we still continue to do to this day. Uh, other areas that we will cover is uh, in reference to policy, where a question could come up and my team would look at legislation, guidance, taking advice from stakeholders and then building basically a, a portfolio and then taking it to Fraser for Fraser to make a decision based on all the information possible. So essentially that's my role at the moment. And in your uh, sort of personal life, is, do you do you come across shooting, or have you had any kind of involvement in it at all? Uh, I shoot intermittently. Uh, I've done clays, some target shooting in the past. Uh, I'm not a shooter per se myself. Uh, my brother uh, does a lot of airsoft, uh, and my passion is more history. So I'm very focused on historical weapons and such like, uh, which comes up well in this job. Yeah. Uh, for the amount of people that actually want things that no, most people haven't heard of and I get excited about most of the gants from 1897 oh, that's fantastic yeah, no, a totally totally different angle but you know, having a fascination of uh, historical, uh, historical rifles and weapons is uh, that's brilliant if we move on and if I go to you Fraser about um, Police Scotland and, and your role in firearms licensing and discussions that you have with the, the rest of the UK. How, how does that work in, in those discussions? Obviously, we're going to talk about uh, air gun licensing later, which is happening in Scotland, but it's not happening in the rest of the UK. So how do those d discussions work um, with everyone else in the other police forces? Okay, there's a... Uh, uh, firearms legislation within the UK is a reserve matter. 
So therefore it's dealt with by uh, Westminster and the Home Office, put out national guidance in relation to how we uh, go about our business. The, within that structure, uh, there are a number of groups which c come under the Firearms Explosive Licence and Working Group, the National Police Chief Council. Uh, firearms Explosive uh, Licence and Working Group, which is commonly known as Felweg. Everyone talks about Felweg within this environment. Now, Felweg has got a number of, of strands in it. It goes from the practitioners uh, meeting where uh, members of the police, uh, police shooting organisations, uh, Basque, Sachs, the other, uh, the British uh, Shooting Sports Council and so on, all come to Gun Trade Association, all come round the table and say, right, okay, what are the particular challenges which are facing us as an organisation? Uh, we listen to everyone in different, uh, different perspectives, come to decisions and then take that towards Felweg, which is the Firearms Explosive Licence and Working Group, which is held nationally and chaired by uh, an ECC Orford uh, from Durham, who basically represents National Police Chief Council. Uh, throughout the UK. He also then takes what's learned from Felweg up to uh, the strategy group, which is the chief officers, to say how are the police in the UK going to deal with firearms licensing and what is, what's a good practice uh, and how do we then promulgate that. Now, what the absolute drive for that Felweg is to have consistency, which means as well, Police Scotland now went from eight forces to one force, so we're in a, quite a good position to get consistency. It's taken a wee bit of time, but however, we can, which means basically, I use an analogy, if you apply in Inverness or you're applying Dumfries, it's the same forum, it's the same questions you get asked, and it'll be the same decision-making which goes along that. England and Wales are slightly more complicated because there's 43 different forces. So therefore, what we want is, if you apply in Inverness or if you apply in Plymouth, then the same decisions and uh, mechanisms and making decisions and understanding interpretation of legislation is the same. So there is a drive for that which is reflected in the Home Office guidance which again is that kind of document which Felweg, the shooting organisations and so on all contribute to and is used as a template for this is how you should run a firearms licensing department. And Alex, what is it like be, being part of those discussions and how, uh, it may seem an obvious question, but how important is it that uh, shooting um, organisations such as SACS have a seat at the table and are able to have these face-to-face -face discussions? I think the principle of us all working together is very, very important. Um, there's clear cooperation. The thing that struck me being involved with um, Fraser at a policy level in firearms licensing is the transparency now and the fact that we're all striving to the same outcome, which is a firearms licensing that is effective in terms of risk management in the community, but also it is not too heavy-handed in terms of shooters who are mostly law-abiding, sensible people who undertake exciting, fun activities in the countryside. So um, it's good to be part of it. The discussions that we're having are formative. They are clearly having an effect on decision-making. Um, I can make a suggestion. It's taken seriously by Fraser or, or somebody else at a higher level. And um, there can be an outcome from, for that. So, yes, we have a voice. It's listened to. Um, we listen to Fraser too. And we take on board some of his suggestions. And I think there's never been a time that the shooting organisations and the police licensing teams have worked better together. Fraser, sorry, did you want I, to interject that? I think, I think a, a really good example of how 
the system works is the change in condition to include the word practice. Now, Alec brought to us, Sachs brought to us, the query about uh, that you weren't, it didn't say any conditions for a firearm certificate in relation to practice. It said zeroing and then lawful quarry, which again was a good move in relation to lawful quarry because it then took out the, the you're allowed to shoot a fox with that rifle and you're allowed to shoot a deer with that rifle, but however, what about the quandary about the person sitting in a high seat out went for road or, or out uh, stalking road and lo and behold, a fox walks along. Right, and there was the difficulty about that. But however, what Alec highlighted was it doesn't use the word practice. So if you've already zeroed your rifle, and for instance you go to DSC one or whatever, and you want to practice to say can you shoot that, uh, then that's not lawful quarry and it's not zeroing. So therefore, what is it? And there was a there was a there was a challenge there. So I then took that very logical suggestion to Felweg and put that to Felweg to say, we think we should change the conditions to this. There was agreement round about Felweg, and then as a result of that, it appears in the Home Office conditions. So therefore, everybody in the UK has a, will, be, will have that condition on the certificate because it was logical, it was forward-thinking, it made sure that people were able to do what they wanted to do with the firearm, a, and they weren't breaking the law. So it was that was just a piece of common sense, logical thinking, which was then accepted as common sense, logical thinking, and then implemented as national policy. And because the the links are really quite short between the shooting organisations, the police who sit on Felweg are the licensing managers, because I truly believe in partnership working, and because the links are there, you can get an idea from a, a fairly logical idea and get it implemented fairly quickly. So. We saw the logic and it implemented it right away and then lo and behold it's national policy in relation to home office guidance. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good example of something that a lot of people I guess won't realise, Alex. I think that the relationship we have uh, across the UK is actually quite warm. We'll, we'll always have differences of opinion but we can engage those differences in a way that we've never done before. Um, we'll be listened to, we can um, have disagreements about certain policy matters, but the, the main thing is that we get on really well. We, we, we respect each other's views, and um, we're taking forward licensing in a way that perhaps has never been taken forward before. The medical matters um, issues is one we'll come, come to later on, but it's a classic example of where the police and the Home Office have come to shooting organisations and said, right, we've got this idea, we want to take this forward and improve the system in this way. What do you think about it? And we've been involved in that from the get-go. And it's, it's now it's working better than before. I think it's, it's, it's better for risk management. And it's something that uh, we, we've all worked on together. So that's a real improvement. Andy Fraser touched on uh, the different areas of Scotland becoming one, one police force in Scotland now and how licensing has smoothed. Have you seen that reflected in in the actual um, applications and it becoming easier to process? Oh, definitely. To give you an example, uh, when we moved to one national system, we introduced a computer system and basically took uh, eight different computer systems and put it into one. Uh, in delivering a national process, we found that there was 14 different ways to say a bolt-action rifle which created major problems because we had rifle bolt action, rifle BA, rifle uh, space BA, and it meant that we were, it was taking a lot of time of processing staff. So we basically went away, looked at 
what was done well within the rest of Scotland and what was done poorly and took the best practice in order that we could then introduce uh, a one-size-fits-all, basically, for the inquiries into firearms licensing, which has led in turn that we can make much more efficiency savings, spend a lot more time uh, looking at the contentious uh, inquiries that we have and make it nice and transparent so members of the public or applicants or certificate holders know exactly who's dealing with the certificates at renewals, uh, how you go about contacting them and the timescales. Whereas before Police Scotland and the process came along, it was quite up near. Different places done it different ways, whereas now we have one transparent process for everyone. So how does the, the, the structure actually work? I, I, live, I live in Angus and my uh, local firearms department is Dundee. So do they then feed into the central unit or do they just have a, 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 a set criteria that they have to follow? It's basically a set criteria. Everyone in all the processing centres in Scotland uh, follow the same. The Taking, for example, a renewal, uh, 12 weeks before your renewal is due, you will receive a letter basically saying that your renewal is due in 12 weeks' time. Please download the form and complete it. Uh, and do not send it in, which was a new process that we introduced. And if you wish to pay for it, you have the option of paying online or going into your local bank. Uh, again, that's uh, quite a new process to speed things along a little. You were then asked to hold on to your uh, application for your renewal, and a firearms inquiry officer would come out to your, your home and undertake the inquiry. And thereafter, once uh, they had made their recommendations, pass through their own local management, and then it would come to firearms licensing with three weeks prior to your expiry. And at that time, if there was no issues, you would be issued with your certificate. And that is the same process that you could move. If somebody works in Dundee, they could go to Inverness, they could go to Dumfries, and we all work the same process now. Uh, and all the local policing divisions are all now bought into it as well. Their firearms inquiry officers have their, their inquiry time maximised. They can manage their own workload and they can make appointments with certificate holders when is best for the certificate holder. Uh, for years it was always very Monday to Friday, 8 to 4, whereas now if a certificate holder works uh, night shift, uh, they can somebody can go out during the day. However, if they work Monday to Friday, 10 until 6, a firearms inquiry officer could be out at the house 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, whatever suits the applicant. I'm very... I, I it's been a while since I had my renewal, so I'm very pleased to know that we don't have to send a check-in anymore, <laughs> which was the case, and I couldn't believe that that had been on, going on for so long because I don't actually even have a checkbook. So I had to go back to my parents and say, can you please write a check for me for so much money to send in? <laughs> so that, that is good news. Um, it sounds to me like it's a lot more f uh, flexible from the way that you're describing it, where it's sort of fitting around the actual people applying. Although... It, there were um, discussions and uh, possibly rumours of cuts within licensing and the staffing. Is that sort of flexibility that you're discussing, does that compensating for that or did that not actually happen? Do you have more or less staff than there was? Maybe Fraser would like to touch on that. I think, it, I mean, we've, we've increased the, the, uh, the staffing in, in respect of the processing staff. Uh, there are eight processing centres in Scotland. Uh, the, the cuts came because or there were a, num a reduction in the number of firearms inquiry, full-time firearms inquiry officers. Now, there is a cyclical nature of firearms licensing insofar as there are three extremely busy years, and we're right in the middle of that just now, and two 
not as busy years, but still busy. Now, we had a number of full-time staff who uh, were, during the, the quieter times, quieter, right? And then at the end of the day, it's public money and so on, and we had to make it as efficient as possible. So there was a reduction in the number of full-time inquiry officers. However, uh, it was recognised immediately, and when I was asked the questions about it by the executive, uh, how would we how how would we fix that? And then the, the the answers to that were we'd have to train police officers up, and the key word there is train police officers up. And as a result of that, we have six hundred people uh, or, or officers who are trained, have been through a three day national course, uh, understand what the demands of shooting are, and license and certification process, and so on. And they are all based round throughout Scotland. But previously, even before that. Northern Constabulary didn't have any, or the old N Northern Constabulary area, they had no full-time firearm inquiry officers. So therefore, uh, all their inquiries were done by police officers. Argyll and Butte, there were no firearms inquiry officers. Well, there was one, but he was an administrator, or he, 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 he kind of processed administration and also did some firearm inquiries. Uh, however, 40% of the demand was already done by police officers. So we have enhanced that. And with the other efficiency uh, drive or the effectiveness drive, really, to turn around certificates, really, within 12 weeks. And we're doing all right with that because what the average since is 90 odd percent. And the last two weeks, for instance, in relation to renewal before expiry, was sitting at 96% and 93% last week. So. It's, there's no delays built into the system now. There's no waiting for certificate holders to come back to us with their inquiries. We're really proactive to say, we need this out, we need it done, because temporary permits and so on just cause us grief. They double mm -hmm. our work, and we want to make it as slick and as quick as possible. And, and that obviously came after the period where there, there was a, a, a short period in time where you could certainly see it across the social media forums where mm. people were struggling and concerned about the delay in getting their certificates back. But that, that has all been addressed now. We, we were in the position where there were people going to be, their, their posts were going to be made redundant and there was a process in relation to staff consultation, etc., which had to be actually dealt with. And before we could actually move to the full, uh, the, the reorganisation of it, we had to take obviously cognizance of because people were going to be losing their roles and doing what they they enjoyed, and there was obviously that, that conversation with staff associations, etc., etc. And I, I will be the first to admit it was slightly choppy at that time in relation to delays, but we have we have cleared that choppy water and that uncomfortable water uh, to the, uh, well, as I say, we're, in, we're consistently in the mid-90s percent in relation to people getting their uh, certificates before, inquiry, before expiry. A temporary permit in Scotland is now a rare thing. Hmm. And you say 12 weeks for a full application? Uh, uh, that's the maximum time? Well, for for renewal or for grant, we are aiming for uh, for 12 weeks. And if it's not 12 weeks, well, then we ask questions why it's not been done in 12 sure. weeks. It's, that's, that's even more important for renewals because there is an end date. Mm -hmm. You know, for a grant, there was historically, I think, re and relatively recently historically, there was a, there was a viewable... That'll take as long as it takes because there's not an end date on it. And I can understand where that came from. But however, we as the management of firearms license and are saying that's not going to be the case. We are going to drive these things through within 12 weeks. So a grant is dealt with exactly the same as a renewal.
And Alex, you have uh, discussions every day with members with regard to firearms licensing. What is, what is the general feeling of firearms holders or people applying about how things have, have shifted over the years and the ease of it? I think there's been a sea change in the last uh, 24 months in terms of the, the service that shooters in Scotland have experienced from firearms licensing, both in terms of the uh, turnaround time skills, but also the friendliness and the approachability. Um, there was a legacy issue where some of the forces perhaps weren't as friendly as they could have been, and um, that's been well documented in social media and uh, uh, something we don't need to cover. But things have changed, and... Um, we do actually hear now far more complimentary uh, uh, comments from members rather than the usual, this has gone wrong and please can you come and sort it. So we're getting emails now sent in regards to individual farms inquiry officers, uh, um, comp- complimentary about their uh, performance, about how they've approached a certain contentious matter. Uh, we're very, very happy indeed. Uh, I think the process, if there are any uh, changes to happen going forward, clearly the shooting organisations will be involved in that. And we're very thankful of that relationship that we now have with Fraser and with Andy and with the others at Police Scotland. It's working really well. Um, we're, we're happy. Things can improve in some ways, but the, the actual principal uh, position is that firearms licensing has improved remarkably. Andy, what can shooters do to help themselves in the process, to make it make sure that they're not the reason for holding uh, any, anything up. You obviously streamlined the process a lot at your end, but you must come up against things time and time again that is the, the reason why there's an issue, either with a renewal or a grant of a license. I think certainly in the last few months, uh, probably more so than the last 12, uh, 12 months, is that we now have police officers and firearms inquiry officers who are much more flexible to the needs of the customer, who is a certificate holder. Uh, I would ask the certificate holder not to see uh, the police as a hindrance to getting a certificate and actually work with us. Uh, the time scales by which these officers and firearms inquiry officers are working to uh, is quite a, quite a long period. Uh, however, if they are finished an inquiry quicker, they will come back to processing centres quicker and we will look to issue certificates quicker. So I would ask certificate holders to engage with the, the, the police uh, when looking to make appointments with them. Uh, and if they have queries, come to us directly and we'll see if we can, we can solve them at an early stage. Mm. So just ask questions. I, I, I would add, add to that is please read the letter. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> right, the letters, the letters that come out are, 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 are quite clear, uh, or we think they're quite clear. Uh, when you actually read them, they read as if they're quite clear and they're quite specific about this is where to pay your money into, this is the bank account and so on, this is the form, please download the form, etc, uh, etc. Et but however, in the, the amount of times I hear the girls, especially because I'm based in Glasgow and the girls who work in the processing centre there and then explaining to someone what they've got to do, and that's already in the letter and it's like, please read the letter. <laughs> uh, I, I, 
I, I mean, the, the thing that, and again, it's because it's public money, and we've got to watch what we do with the money. It's like it's like download the forum, you know, and you'll get people who'll say that well, I don't have access to internet now. I mean, um, my dad, no doubt his colleagues and so on, will be saying, I heard your son on the radio there, but however, when my dad speaks about that for his certification, well, I don't have access to the internet. I know, but you've got a son and a daughter who have got access to the internet, so please get them to download the forum. And we would just ask people to think a wee bit more, just a tiny wee bit laterally, you know, in relation to, well, I might not have access to the internet, but I know someone's got access to the internet, so they can help me with that and so on. So, but probably, is read the letter. Read the stuff we come, we we'll send out to you, because it is changing. Uh, and, and again, I mean, you alluded to that early. It's been some time, and we've changed it from checks and so on. And it's just people getting to know, please read the letter, mm. please read the forums. Uh, if, you, if you have a query, don't get me wrong with our service. Pick the phone up and ask us. But however, a lot of the questions are already answered. In the <laughs> what, what I would say is, and we have had phone calls from certificate holders who have basically phoned up saying, uh, can I not get my old firearms inquiry officer back? Uh, and unfortunately, the answer is probably going to be no. Uh, the, the process has been put in place to allow flexibility, and there's a good chance that certificate holders, who may well have dealt with the same firearms inquiry officer for the last 10, 15 years, might, might never see that person again. Mm. Uh, and the, the police officer or the new firearms inquiry officer might deal with a renewal today, but in five years' time it will be someone different. Uh, that has its plus points, but it's also got its negative points. Uh, a plus point being they're looking at it with fresh eyes, and it allows uh, members of the public and certificate holders to engage with the police in general, and hopefully build up more trust and confidence in us. Talking about moving forward uh, with technology, Alex, there are some members in Northern Ireland with the fully online system that, that's coming ahead that I know are potentially having issues, and this probably ties in nicely with what Fraser was uh, saying about maybe you can get somebody else. It seems reasonable to uh, somebody else to use the internet for you. It seems reasonable to suggest in the sort of modern world that we live in that everything would move completely online and we wouldn't be dealing with paper. Is, is that, so maybe if I can go to you first, Alex, to talk about maybe issues that you've heard over the phone and then maybe go to, to Fraser about is that something that'll happen here? We support the principle of um, online licensing. Clearly, it's more efficient. There's uh, 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 cost efficiencies there, which are uh, really important going forward. And also, the, the process has potential to be quicker for applicants and the police as well. The issue that we have with the um, proposed 100% online licensing for Northern Ireland is that there'll be no transition period. So it'll be from a paper-based system to an online system overnight at some point later on this year. We have a large number of members in Northern Ireland that genuinely don't have access to the internet, have, have zero IT skills. So how, how they will be engaged with in this process, I actually don't understand. Um, there's been no equality impact assessment. There's been no real background study into, into this. It's just been a, a great idea taken forward without any real, uh, real, world, real world information to um, challenge it. So we support online licensing, but um, with a meaningful transition period, months, years, to make sure that a, a large sector of an often aged or vulnerable uh, 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 part of the community is not discriminated against. Fraser, would you like to carry on from that? Uh, there's been a, there, was, there is ongoing work by uh, Fairweg nationally in relation to e-commerce. 
Uh, it's probably not gone as quickly as they would like it to have gone uh, in, in relation to moving towards e-commerce, and that had a big, uh, a big impact upon the fees, which were changed a couple of years ago. Uh, do I... I position of Police Scotland at the moment is, let's see what how e-commerce, e what it looks like, how it works, etc., etc., and then, because there are different IT systems which are used with the, 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 the police. It's not so much the front-end system which is a challenge, it's the back-end system, it's the, the system which sends it off to go and check criminal convictions and so on. That's It's linking up all that big, big IT at the very back of it, uh, which is sometimes a challenge. I think, without a shadow of a doubt, that it would be ideal if someone could go on and uh, and apply for their, their firearm or shotgun certificate or ear, ear weapon certificate uh, like you do for your driving licence and like you do for your uh, for your passport, right? Uh, that's the basis of e-commerce. You can do it for other places, so why can't you do it there? We are, I think, realistically a number of years away from being able to do that, but is that the aim? Would that be the intention of Police Scotland in the future? Without a shadow of a doubt. Because all these things take weight off the processing side, uh, and anything we can do to make it more efficient, more economic and more effective because to the customer service base, whilst ensuring public safety has mm -hmm. got to be welcomed and a good thing, but it takes a, wee a bit of time. I, I think the online banking that we've introduced uh, in a facility to go into your own bank has been very, very successful. Uh, but off the back of that, we had it in our mind, if people didn't or were unable to use that facility, they can still send in the cheque. And that will continue with air weapons that are coming in. Uh, we will uh, request a fee to be paid in regards to air weapon grants. That will be able to be paid digitally or online banking. But the facility will always be there for us to take checks because we know there's people out there. It's a customer-driven business and that's what we're in. Well, that ties me very nicely into the next topic, which is indeed air, air gun licensing. Uh, 1st of January uh, next year, you're going to have to have an air weapon certificate if you don't currently have an FSC or shotgun certificate. And we're only a couple of days away now from the, the opening of actually being able to apply for an air weapon certificate. The general feeling, I think, uh, it would be fair to say amongst shooters uh, and air gun um, actual owners of air guns is that the, the law itself is maybe disproportionate to any uh, public safety issue. But obviously the, the law is there now and everyone is going to have to abide by it. There must have been a lot of things that you've had to do um, within Police Scotland and the Firearms Department to make sure that you're ready for that. Can you maybe just, Fraser and then uh, Andy, maybe just talk through what you've done and, and how ready are you? We're only a couple of days away. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this journey for, for, for me started, what, three or, three or four years ago uh, now when there was a real drive towards getting the legislation in from the Scottish Government and we were obviously engaged very, very closely with the policy officials within the government in relation to, well, what, how would this impact upon the police and uh, is there any particular wishes that or challenges that, 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 that you would face in relation to that? Uh, one of the particular things we gave evidence at the Parliamentary Committee in relation to that was uh, the smoothing so that you didn't have a, a, a kind of tsunami of applications in the first six months and then every five years thereafter you would have another tsunami of applications which would which would shut the processing side. So the, the work towards putting a, 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 a smoothing part within the legislation which let us decide on the first certificate how long it's going to be 
uh, which let us smooth out the demand. Uh, so a lot of work done internally in relation to adjusting showguns so that it now reflects a, a tri-terminus certificate. It's a new word. Uh, but you're going to have people who are going to have a firearm and shotgun and an airvent certificate. So it's a tri-terminus certificate. Uh, so how, how we actually work with that and then getting resources to actually be able to do it. We recognise that this was, and we always recognise that this was extra work. Uh, but however, we have the capacity <coughs> to deal with that extra work and we look forward to the 1st of July to see what the demand's going to be because we don't know what it's going to be. And uh, Andy's going to be up at the Scottish Game Fair uh, on Friday, Saturday and Sunday uh, in, the, in the police command vehicle which sits up there in the big van uh, and we'll be able to assist people who come up on uh, on Friday, Saturday and Sunday and say, uh, you're looking for an event certificate? Yeah, I'm here to answer the questions and be if you want a, an application form, there we go. I think it was a really cute move on behalf of the government and a really helpful move to, uh, if you've got an armour or a shotgun certificate, uh, to let them cover until uh, the renewal comes up. Because that immediately takes 52,000 people out of the equation, which is a big demand on us. Andy, would you just like to, to add to that and, and the organisation and the what you've had to do to be to be ready? I mean, are, are you are you ready? We are ready. Uh, don't get me wrong; it's been a, a hard road on occasion. Uh, we've got an experienced team uh, dealing with the air weapon project as a whole. Uh, some officers were detailed <coughs> to deal with the very successful surrender campaign that has just been completed, and myself and others have been dealing with the policy and process side. Uh, I've just been given a bit of paper. The air <coughs> weapons that we received during the surrender campaign is 11,569. And since the end of the campaign, which was just last week, we've had a further uh, 1,293 weapons handed in, and that's increasing every day. From our, our process side, uh, what's going to be happening is all uh, grants, whether it be uh, for air weapons themselves, events, clubs... Uh, club approval, sorry, uh, will be coming to the processing and project team in Glasgow initially. Uh, and that's order that we can manage the workload and actually see how many we're going to be getting in. Uh, and essentially that's it. We're just we're raring to go. We've got the team down the stairs now and they're practising the new processes. Uh, they've all experienced in the actual computer system itself. So it's just a little nuances with regards to the, the actual air weapon certification. So, looking forward to it. Alex, before I, I come to you to ask about, again, about the, the feeling and what your feedback has been from shooters, Fraser, what are you doing to make sure that people are aware that this law exists? Uh, my fear is that there will be people who, are who have them, who are unaware of them. I've, you know, I saw a news report um, four weeks ago, and whenever it was, talking about the, the availability of handing in you know, your air, we air, we air weapons if you don't intend to apply for a license. But... I'm sure there must be a handful of people out there at least who don't actually or are not aware. Maybe they don't watch the news. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a... <clears throat> we're in an internet-driven age now. Uh, there's been a publicity campaign by the Scottish Government, but however, the websites, which are generally where everyone... The majority of the population, I would suggest, goes now to, to find out about things... Uh, it's on the Scottish Government website, it's on the Police Scotland website, it's on all the shooting organisations' websites in relation to that, and again, the phones are always on uh, in relation to being able to answer questions in, 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 in relation to them. Uh, 
that's probably having spoken to colleagues within uh, the shooting community. You know, I mean, I get asked all the time, "What's happening with weapons?" But I'm now I kind of kid on back the way and, uh, and said, "Have you read any websites about it?" And generally, the answer is no, mm. right? So that answers and that dispels all the rumours and all the myths and so on which are going on round about it. Uh, there are <coughs> basically, if you want to keep your air weapon and you've got a good reason, and the legislation set out there, we will give you a certificate, right? If you have, if you pass the certain criteria, the, the criteria which we're setting out in relation to you being suitable to possess that, that air weapon, you'll get a certificate. If you don't need your air weapon, then hand it in, eh, or dispose of it in another way, sell it or whatever, but or hand it in. If you keep it after the 1st of January, you have the potential, you're committing a crime and what we're wanting to do. And it's actually quite, we've got six months to be able to sort this out. Mm. So if someone applies on the 1st of July, can I tell them just now, don't expect to get a certificate on the 2nd of July, because we will we will look at it, we will probably take our time over the first few ones and think, right, okay, where are we going here? Is, it, is our system work? Do we need to adjust it? Do we need to tweak it in any way? And if not, but you will get your certificate before the uh, before the the deadline, for want of a better word, the 31st of uh, December. What I'm slightly concerned about is you get a big influx at the very beginning, it goes all quiet, and then in December folk give it, oh, I should really get a certificate. That does nobody any favours, right? It puts us under immense strains, and it, it would then you've got the position of, come the 1st of January, what am I going to do with this air weapon? right? And it just causes people grief. So what I would suggest is get it in soon as and then wait for the certificate coming out. With regards to the process itself, uh, taking it a step forward from uh, Fraser, if you require an air weapon certificate uh, for the 1st of January, uh, in order to guarantee it, you have to apply before the 1st of November. Uh, if you apply after that, we will do our utmost to get it out, uh, and I'm hopeful that we will, but we just don't know the, the scale, and we don't know how many certificates uh, that we will have to inquire into and issue. When people are applying, in the first instance, if it's purely for an air weapon certificate, uh, not coterminous with the existing firearm or shotgun certificate, please do not send in any money. Uh, we will contact you directly and actually request a fee at that time. And that's due to the fact that we're going to be able to uh, amend the duration of the first certificate to fall into the quiet period that Fraser spoke about. And Alex, you speak to the members every day, and we were just last weekend at a great event, um, an HFT event, with lo lots of people who are in love with air gun shooting and who will all be applying for their license. But what is, what is the, the general feeling of it, and do you think that there's obviously going to be a cost to having this air weapon certificate, and it's not going to be as small as if you already have a, a firearms and, and shotgun certificate, do you think that's going to put people off? Do you think it's going to damage shooting? Um, you know, air gun, is, air gun shooting is how a lot of us get into it as youngsters. I think it's got potential to damage shooting, yes, but it's also got potential to reinvigorate the sport as well. Um, if people have a certificate, not that we support air gun certification, we're dead against it, but it's coming in. But if people have an air gun certificate, at least they'll be wanting to use it. There's, there's, you know, they've paid £72 for the benefit of having it. They're going to they're going to make sure they use it. And if that means that more people get involved in club air gun shooting or enjoying the HFT, which for me was my first time doing it last weekend, it was great fun. I'm currently looking to buy a PCP um, and get involved in it even more. 
then if they get involved in club shooting, that, that's all to the good. So yes, the, the, again with uh, like the the FEO's situation moving to beat cops like with Ergon licensing, there are benefits and disbenefits. Going forward, as much as we are against Ergon licensing, the principle of it, we will be um, pushing for the positives as much as possible, and really trying to get people to one be aware of licensing coming in, secondly understand what they have to do to fulfil their legal requirements, and thirdly finding ways for them to engage with the wider airgun shooting community and whether it's quarry shooting, pest control or target <coughs> shooting, get involved. Uh, Fraser, what are going to be the, the requirements? Uh, firstly, if we, we just talk about security, because that's a, a fairly simple one to explain. And then if you just take that a step further, uh, those of us who have uh, firearms and shotguns will know that there is a, a suitability criteria where you're actually looking at, at the person and the character of the person, <coughs> whether they're suitable to actually own firearm and shotgun. So how's that going to work with air, air weapon certificate? Okay, security is really dealt with under the Home Office leaflet, which, which deals about air, air, weapon, uh, air weapon security. There's got to be reasonable measures to, made, uh, to be made which would ensure that the, uh, that the air weapon is kept secure. That can mean a bicycle chain and lock around about a rafter or a hard point in the house. Uh, it, it, it can mean putting it in a case uh, which is lockable or whatever. Uh, it can mean putting it into... Uh, if you're a fireman and shotgun certificate already and you've got a cabinet, put it in that. It's just going to be. It's going to be reasonable, right? What is reasonable now? Reasonable to me is as long as no one can. Uh, that's no one can get access to it who's not certificated, and that I think is basically kind of the ballpark figure. Uh, again, <coughs> we will. The guidance which we'll be looking at is the Home Office uh, leaflet. Uh, which kind of sets out the criteria for that, and that'll be our ballpark as well. But policy will evolve in relation to this. You know, we will we will be asked questions that we that realistically, just like any other organisation, think we've never been asked that before, right? But however, there'll be a judgment call made in relation to that. So, uh, and is that suitability, or is sorry, is that? Uh, how I'm going to store this, is that okay? And probably there'll be conversations, there'll be incoming calls from uh, from SACs and the, sh the shooting organisations to say, what about this? Now, what we then do is go away and think about it and then come back to you with an answer. Uh, in relation to the suitability of the, the person, <coughs> that's, that to us is key in relation to uh, all firearms licensing. It's about the suitability of the person. However, the tests in relation to that are proportionate lethality of the actual weapon so shotgun devastating at close range right <coughs> full bore rifle again extremely uh, accurate over long ranges and able to deliver a lethal uh, a lethal charge at a long long range air weapons less so but again still devastating and still dangerous to public at close ranges so the kind of ballpark figure right which we are looking at is we're kind of reflected in what goes on in relation to Disclosure Scotland. If you're suitable to work with, and this is the ballpark, this is a test, right? If you're suitable, would we let you work with children and vulnerable adults? Yes, yeah, so you likely, is that kind of going to be around about the test that we're looking for to say that person's suitable to have a, a to have an air weapon? There is a journey ahead of us here in relation to what we actually get in, and, and no doubt that as case law develops as well, that will develop how we think and how the Police Scotland organisation thinks in relation to what the views of uh, any subsequent appeals and so on. But at the moment, 
what our view is, and I, I said it when I was giving evidence at Parliament as well, and it was about that that kind of disclosure Scotland check. You know, would would you pass a disclosure check? And if you would, you'll get that. And it's all about it's all about public safety. We're not wanting people who are going to misuse air weapons having air weapons. So by that count, it is possible that there there could be somebody who couldn't quite pass the criteria required for a shotgun <coughs> or firearms, but you would uh, issue them with an, an air weapons certificate? Uh, yes. I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll have to fit in with the legislation, you yep. know. Uh, there will be people, it'll be, it'll, well, the test will be, as I say, proportionate to lethality. Okay. But if someone's not suitable to have a firearm, an air weapon is a firearm under that legislation, you know, in relation to lethal barreled weapon. Uh, but however, we would be, the tests, as I say, are proportionate to lethality of that. Alex? We deal with many contentious <coughs> cases at SACS for um, the Firearms Act itself. Um, in terms of shotgun and firearms certificates having been revoked or about to be revoked and the difficulties of people reapplying for them, I've handpicked 16 or 17 potential air weapon certificate applications um, for the summer going forward. Uh, drink driving convictions in the past, um, allegations of domestic abuse, depression, mental health issues, that kind of thing. So once things quieten down from uh, at the end of July, hopefully, August, September, so maybe a slightly quieter period for air gun licensing, um, we'll be asking our members to put those potentially contentious applications in. We'll be monitoring them with Fraser and Andy and the team, just seeing where we get to with those, where there are hurdles to be crossed, if they can be crossed, and how that decision-making matrix will um, be reflected in the real world in terms of people who might not have been able to pass the suitability test for a firearm or shotgun certificate, but have shot air guns for a very, very long time, quite safely, whether they will be able to um, keep doing their sport. Um, tying into that, um, and just sort of putting an end to, to the air gun topic, we had a, a, a reader and listener question in um, talking about shooting air guns safely in the back garden, as a lot of people do, um, plinking, and they want to know whether the rules for air gun licensing will then prohibit that, so you wouldn't be shooting a firearm in your back garden necessarily. <coughs> but I, I, I'm assuming... And that is, as the question came in, that it's all to do with safety, backstops. Is it a, a suitable place to do it? Obviously not in built-up areas, etc. What, what's the definition of garden? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you if you go and look, many farms I know who have gardens who have got hundreds of acres beyond yeah, okay. it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 that, that was a practical difficulty at the very beginning. You know, in the, during the drafting the legislation, and that we were aware of. And my question was, what's the definition of garden? Mm. Right. So each case will be on its own merits. Yeah. Right. And and that is. Without that's what happens within all firearms licensing. Each case is dealt with on its own merits. So if you stay, if your garden right has got hundreds of acres behind it, suitable backstop, blah blah blah, then there'll be no problem. If you stay in a garden uh, and it's got a, a worst case, right, a primary school right behind it, mm-hmm. and you want to go out and shoot it during the, the tea break, right, or their the break, well. Eight, if there's a pellet goes over there, the legislation's already there. It was reckless discharge of a firearm. Sure. There was no need for a legislation to stop specifically you're not allowed to shoot in a back garden plinking because the legislation was already there underneath the reckless discharge of a firearm. So it, it would depend on what 
the circumstances are. And the key question to me was, well, define a garden, right? And each garden is different, and each garden will have its own particular difficulties. Uh, and are we? Uh, there was someone phoned me a couple of days ago and said, well, uh, you know, I, I shoot at one of the small steel boxes with the retaining targets yeah, on yeah. them and so on. Can I still do that? And I said, yeah, put your application in and we'll have a look at it. So I've not said to anybody, don't put your application in because I can't stop them putting an application in. But however, if there's a query comes up in relation to the application form, it may be that we have to, but we're not anticipating this, get one of the local beat cops round and say, what's your thoughts in relation to that? And then report back and say, this is how long it is, this is how wide the garden is, and this is what my concerns would be, or I don't have any concerns in relation to that. So that's where that's my impression of it. I agree 100% with Fraser. What I would say is, with regards to the actual application form itself, the questions that are asked are very generic and open-ended. And what I would ask applicants is, put as much information as you can. Uh, when you're talking about security, when you're talking about where you're going to be shooting, I was doing planking about a month ago in a back garden uh, in a scheme, and it was absolutely fine. It was a reasonably small back garden. However, they had put in a suitable backstop, and they had uh, side panels that if there was a ricochet, it would be contained within it. So if my friend was just to put in uh, shooting in back garden, I would be, I would be loath to just off the bat say that's fine. But if he was to say, this is what I've got, and this is how I would secure it against ricochets, this is my kind of backstop, the more information you can give us in that application form, the easier it will make your decision. And it will save us, possibly, as Fraser says, having to send somebody out to say, can I have a wee look at your garden, or can I have a look at your security? Security is another one. We find it all the time with firearm and shotgun certificates, uh, where somebody will just put in very, very uh, short, sharp answers, and then it's a case of... It means nothing to us. You know, give us as much information as you can, plenty of space in the form, uh, and then we can help you continue shooting safely. No, I'm glad you've gone over that in detail. I mean, that I, I haven't seen the, the actual application for myself, so that will be something that you will have to put down there and explain what you actually want to use the air gun for. So. I, I think, and, and probably a theme which will which will be addressed as we go on here, and I think we've already addressed this, it's, it's please work with us. Don't see us, don't see us as the enemy. Don't yeah. see us as the people who will stop you getting a gun. Our job is is to make sure that you're safe to get a gun. That's it, because there is an assumption that you will get that. It's the same with firearms and shotguns. It's the chief constable will, unless. Uh, so therefore, please work with us, right? We are open to requests, we are open to uh, requirements, and but however, see if it's danger to public safety or whatever, that's always going to that's always going to win. And if we don't think it's if we think it is dangerous to the safety of public or the peace, well, we've got a duty to actually deal with that. But uh, it's the plea is, please don't see us as a hindrance mm. or an annoyance or whatever. We want to work with you to make it as efficient, economic and effective as we possibly can. Alex, uh, if there are people out there with air guns, um, SACS members, and they're thinking, what do I really need to do to make sure that what I'm doing is safe for, and a reasonable um, explanation so that when I hand in my, uh, my application, it's going to go through without any issue, I guess you, they could uh, give you a call if they were in any doubt. Yeah, even if you're not a SACS member, um, just give us a call. If you've got any doubts about filling the form in, about, and especially the, um, the, the actual 
requirement for uh, safe shooting itself, backstops in the garden, etc., any doubts of what you're putting down on paper, give us a call. We're there to help. Uh, we, we, the team at SACS, um, both in terms of the management committee and um, those of us, uh, uh, staff SACS, we have decades of shooting experience at air guns, rifles and shotguns. And we will be able to tell you over the phone, looking at Google Maps or whatever, whether your individual circumstances are appropriate and safe and what you might need to put in place in order to be safe. So, but as you heard from Fraser, the Police Scotland approach here is pragmatic. It's about working with us rather than against us. And I would really ask the shooting community to take that for face value and do whatever you can to work with your local firearms inquiry officer teams and the air gun licensing team itself. They have a duty now to fulfil the task appointed to them by Scottish Government. Agree with it or don't agree with it, they have to do this job. Let's help them do it effectively in a way that supports shooting for the future. Brilliant. If we just leave um, air guns behind now, and uh, let's go back to firearm certificates and, and shotgun certificates. I know if I'm just speaking for myself, one of my uh, great fears as a, a law-abiding citizen is that I do something which could mean that I, I lose my certificates, because for me it's completely a way of life. It, it, it is everything that I do. Fraser, can you maybe elaborate on the various reasons or the primary reasons why people end up losing their certificates? And are there a lot of people losing certificates, or is this a fairly small percentage of those people who have them? There are, there are 52,000 people in Scotland who have uh, certificates or have certificates to allow them to have access to firearms and uh, shotguns. Now, the legislation is set out quite clearly under Section 30 of the Firearms Act and related to the various subsections be, be, uh, beneath that. Now, when I came in to my post at the very beginning, uh, I was given advice by uh, a, a, a very knowledgeable uh, solicitor who says it's the legislation, right? It, so that's what we will go with all the time. I've got to... We are governed by what the tests and that are set out in Section 30, 30 of the Firearms Act in relation to firearm and shotguns. In relation to the revocation process, there's been so far this year been 44 people revoked in Scotland. There are 52,000 people who are certificate holders. Ballpark 1% of these 52% cause me any significant concern. Now that concern can range from being concerned about their conduct or, more importantly, their circumstance. Now, their conduct might mean being that they're, they're committing criminality, they're associating with criminality, eh, or they're doing things which are against the law or we suspect are against the law. So you've got that side. But there are another side which is probably more delicate in relation to people's circumstances. People during their life will go through periods of crisis. Uh, how they deal with that crisis is, is 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 for them, but however that can impact upon us, because people can fall ill, the kind of mental health issues, psychiatric or psychological issues, and guns in these circumstances don't generally mix. And bear in mind my duties as a constable, which is set out in legislation, is that one of my duties is to protect life. That includes the certificate holders. It is a hard fact that people have, will, and do shoot themselves. And it's at that point when you start talking about that, you're talking about life and death. It's not glamorous. It's, it's not wanting to dram dra dramatise the situation. It's just a fact that people have, 
with a firearm, a very effective way of ending their life. And we want to stop that, right? So therefore, if people are ill, if people are posing a danger to anybody else, then what they have is access to a firearm, which is by definition is a lethal barreled weapon, and we want to remove that firearm from them. So you've got the criminality side, which, again, we don't want uh, guns being in possession of people who are unsuitable. And on the other side of that, we have the change of circumstances in life, you know, that people get ill and we sometimes have to revoke their certificates because of that. If someone expresses suicidal ideation, for instance, the public, general public would expect me to go and get their guns off them, and that's what I do. And, and how does that sort of uh, procedure take place? If, if the, the decision-making process, how, how many people does it pass through, and then how does the procedure take place if you know that you've got to go and take uh, the guns and a licence off somebody? There'll be some trigger event, right? And that could come in from doctor, family member, police officer on duty. There'll be some event which will trigger that journey. <clears throat> they report the matters to through their line management to the firearms licensing uh, supervisors. Uh, there's a sergeant inspector in the east, west and north regions who will deal with these particular issues. They then and gather the evidence which we require uh, they provide, they produce a report which then goes to one of five, sorry, four inspectors or me. Uh, if it's a particularly difficult one, it can go higher than me. If it's one that I'm sitting on and thinking, maybe it's I, maybe it's no, um, I, I can see why we would, but I can see why we also we wouldn't, uh, then I may, in, I may bring in uh, my... Uh, supervisor, first line managers, or superintendent, or chief superintendent, the commander, or even up to the executive if necessary. Now, the decision is then made, there's a, 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 the reasons for your decisions are set out, and then you write the person, the person gets a letter delivered to them to say that they've been revoked. Now, we moved, probably around about two years ago, to the full and frank letter, right? This is what we, the police, have considered uh, in respect of your revocation. Very often, and I know that when people take them to shooting organisations, and people will go immediately probably to shooting organisations to say, the police have taken my guns off me, this is ridiculous. Uh, the letter will set out exactly what the police have considered in relation to the threat, the, the threat, risk or harm which that particular person poses. I think it's fair to say that very often when the shooting organisations get it, they then see what we're actually dealing with and the advice sometimes changes at that particular time. And so that's how we get to revocation. But I suppose from my perspective, eh, what I would ask people who are in that position is tell the truth to shooting organisations who can advise you. Because if the shooting organisations are only seeing half the picture or what you tell them, eh, then they may they are unsighted in relation to what actually happened and what the police have already told you. Very often there'll be a, an interview that people will be brought in for an interview. Uh, my view is that nothing will be a surprise when you get that letter because we'll have already discussed it with you. Uh, but however, please engage with the shooting organisation so they can give you advice as well. Uh, it's just it's just one of these things, you know, it's my duty to protect the public, public safety, it's legislated for, 
in a number of pieces of legislation, uh, including the Police and Fire Reform Act, which says my job is to protect life. Uh, so therefore, that's what I've got to do. It, it doesn't give me any great delight. It would be great if, if I never ever saw these things. But however, people change. Alex, this is something <coughs> which, uh, which I'm sure you have to deal with as with uh, most shooting, uh, shooting organisations, as uh, Fraser has said, that's going to be the first port of call if someone finds that they're having their firearms or shotgun licence taken away. How does, that, how does that conversation go and, and what do you do to then uh, look at it and then m maybe even it requires an appeal if it's not seen as, as fair or, or right? Or The questions that I ask members on the phone now are very different to the ones that I used to ask when I first took on this job. And... Um, we don't often get the truth at the first telling. And that's not because our members uh, going through difficulty are being evasive. Their minds are on a different plane, and reality to them can be very different to reality that, that we are looking at. And they see things in a different light. Their perspective is different. So I try to engage with them on a very personal level, uh, a very confidential level, to find out that the, the facts behind what's actually happened. So by the time I have a chat with Andy or Fraser or one of the other people inspectors uh, who, who we have a very good relationship with, I'm then better informed rather than coming all the way to an interview with an inspector and then listening to a story that I never heard before. So we can better advise our members if they, as best they can, tell us exactly what's happened, the full picture, everything's in confidence, and we have a tremendous track record of finding meaningful, positive ways forward for members. We can't work miracles. And if you have done something that is clearly out of bounds, you, you've done something very, very stupid, then the chances are you will be revoked. And whether you can successfully apply again in the future is something that is for another time. If it's a minor incident, if it's something that, or, or, or a build-up of minor incidents, traffic offences, or um, you, you, your behaviour in a public context that has been, um, been questioned, then there's potential for an interview. There's potential for you to, with Sachs and Basque and whoever else, to pull together other good references and to, to, to plead your case, to, to say, that this, I am actually this genuine person. This, you, you, you're not seeing the full picture here. And the, the team of inspectors across Scotland is fantastic at sitting down with Sachs and sitting down with the members and actually going right on a human level, face-to-face, -face, eye contact, they can then look at the, the, the member in front of them and go, right, is this a good person or is this a bad person in terms of the suitability under the Firearms Act? We're a lot further forward. I, I, I take heart from the, the work that Fraser and his team are doing in terms of contentious cases. That there are a, a number of contentious cases in Scotland, some of which are long-term and they're, they're waiting the outcome of, of legal cases and that, that has to wait until that outcome. There are other cases that are simply the best thing that can happen is, is that time. And time does often sort things out. But there are a smaller number of cases that we're involved in that just due to the backlogs that have crept up over the last couple of years just haven't quite been looked at. But we take great heart from the fact that they are now being looked at and that process is now changing and it's, a, it's actually quite a positive process as well. So maybe Fraser can talk more about that, contentious review, uh, that review of contentious cases. I, th I mean, what Alex says is... Absolutely right. Uh, what, one of the challenges we find is that we are, uh, we are, what's the word? We're, we're ruled by the legal process. So we, I use a kind of football analogy in relation to, if, uh, to the seizure of firearms. If we 
if we sees a firearm, what I'm doing for the football analogy is put my foot in the ball. Let's go and find out. Let's just have a look about. Let's find out what we're actually doing here and what the circumstances are. And that means taking views in relation to both sides. Uh, what's, what intelligence, what evidence is available to us in relation to taking this forward? You could argue on one hand, well, as soon as you've got that, you should just revoke someone. If there's an outstanding criminal case, that will take precedent over the civil case. So we revoke someone and it gets assisted, which is delayed until after the criminal case is, fi is, is finished. If I put my foot in the ball and wait until the criminal case is finished, then also what we're getting is information available from the criminal case. And then we can make a decision in relation to revocation. And revocation depends what sheriffdom you go to, but however, some of them are really, really quick in relation to someone's got 21 days once they've been revoked to uh, notify their appeal, and then it's a conversation between solicitors, police solicitors who are defending the appeal, and the appellant themselves who are challenging under Section 44 of the Act. I am not of a mind to revoke people in immediately because then you're immediately into the vacation process and we can't have that conversation realistically until after the criminal case. And once we know what the outcome of the criminal case are, then that will inform the decision-making thereafter. So does it take some time? Yes, it does. Are we waiting for criminal cases being finished? Yes, we are. Does that help the, the, the person who's had their guns off them? No. However, if there's a question mark about public safety, and I'm quite sure public opinion would back me here, is that do something before something before it's too late. So therefore that's why we'll take the guns off of people. But what we want to do is put our foot in the ball. Volatile circumstances or volatility in guns just don't mix. And what we want to do is remove guns from that equation and let people go on with their lives and so on. But I get the sensitivities if you're a gamekeeper, right? that your guns are essential to you, and I understand the difficulties, and I get the calls all the time, this is impact upon my vermin control, this is impact on this, and this is impact on that. Well, do you see that event that happened on that particular day? That's what's impacting upon that, and you're not going to get your guns back before that. Mm. And it's it's really, really practical. I mean, I, I use the kind of analogy. I am governed by a discipline. I work for a disciplined organisation, if I was to go and commit a crime, then probably the chief constable would then look for my job and probably take my guns off me. Would take my guns off me. If I'm a gamekeeper, I need my guns. If you do something wrong or put yourself in a situation where you're going to be charged with something, if you if you think that boxing on a Friday night is not on a, outside a pub is not going to impact upon your shotgun certificate or your firearm certificate, then think again, because it will. And when you're released from custody or whatever, the police will be around you to pick up your guns, and lo and behold, your employment could be precarious. So, albeit I am, it's not necessarily a privilege to hold a firearm certificate, but you're in a privileged position. It's really easy to take these guns off you, and therefore don't give me or us a reason to take them off you. And that's, that's the kind of... I would rather not deal with contentious uh, matters, but I've got 52,000 people who have got guns, and in that strata of population, as you get people who work in education, people who work for the police and so on, you will get some people who will do something wrong, and uh, therefore we deal with that. Andy, there must be quite a number of just really stupid things that people have done that you, you, you come up against and you see. The one that I can think in mind, because it happened actually not very far from me, was 
think about two, three years ago, where there was that neck nominations craze, where everyone was videoing and they were, you know, take whatever it was, downing a pint, and then this particular individual jumped off a bridge. Now, I know for a fact that he ended up uh, losing his shotgun license, mm -hmm. I think. Um, a really stupid, irresponsible public display, which was then filmed and put on social media, it was then picked up by The Sun. What do you say to um, license holders to make sure that they don't do the stupid things? I would say to license holders, in the first off, read your certificate conditions. Be aware of what you're entitled to do with the weapons that you hold. Uh, we certainly don't tell people not to to, uh, to drink alcohol, but we be aware of what, when you are sober, what would you consider to be acceptable behaviour? Uh, security with regards to your weapons is one another major factor. Weapons and ammunition, uh, we are constantly uh, being faced with issues related to security around about weapons. So I would say to people, take a step back, put yourself in the position of the police and say, would I consider that acceptable? What, I, what would the public consider acceptable for public safety? I, th I think to go on from Andy's point there is that when you're a firearm and jogging certificate holder, you're generally seen as a responsible person, right? You don't shoot without... A, it's going to put someone in, in danger or whatever, and people wouldn't do that, right, or go out to do that. Uh, but it is a position of responsibility, and what we would ask is act like a responsible person. And if you don't act like a responsible person and you act like an irresponsible person, well, that will probably have consequences. And I know how important my certificates are to me. My whole, my, not my whole life, you know, but however, a significant part of my hobbies throughout the year in relation to bringing pheasants on, feeding pheasants, uh, the camaraderie and the comradeship that that goes, and you're meeting pals with, with a similar a similar outcome, and even if it's going beaten, you're not actually shooting yourself, but however, you're watching people, A, have a good time, and B, and you can appreciate it, and you say, good shot, right? And you can get that. And I know how I would feel if someone took my certificates off me and the impact that that would have on me, but it's a hobby for me. It's a very important hobby, but it's even, you work in that environment, you know, don't put it at risk. Just before we uh, move on to drink driving, Alex, do you have uh, anything to say to the, the licens listeners and, and license holders with regard to making sure that you are a sensible individual, a safe individual, and uh, manage to hold on to your certificates that you've been privileged enough to be, be given? I think one of the biggest things is security of firearms and ammunition. Um, the conditions on your certificate are very, very clear. And if you can demonstrate that you've undertaken best practice in, in terms of keeping your, your, your firearms and ammunition secure as required uh, on your certificate, certainly ammunition on, on a Section 1 certificate, then that is fine. For many people, they take chances. They're lamping at night, putting a box of 243 on the kitchen cupboard, I'll, I'll sort it out in the morning, going to bed for a few hours. Don't do that. Get yourself into a sensible routine. When you go out, you get yourself back in again, take your wellies off, take your wet kit off, sort your battery packs out, that kind of thing. First thing is, secure your firearms and ammunition. Get them cleaned, get them put away, then you sort yourself out after that. And Don't leave it until you've fallen asleep at the kitchen table, don't leave it until the next day, don't leave your rifle against the, uh, the boiler cabinet to keep it warmed up and dry. Get your rifle cleaned, get it stored away safely. We get a number of phone calls from people asking what firearm security means, and often from shooters that have uh, been shooting for a long, long time, 
And if even after 15, 16 years, you don't actually understand the basics of firearm security, then that really concerns me. And it makes our life harder at SACS. And obviously, uh, Fraser and Andy's work harder at Police Scotland. In terms of the contentious cases, there's a balance there. Um, for serious matters, yes, if, if that may preclude somebody from having a firearm a shock certificate, fine. We come across many of those. But there's also proportionality. And what we try and bring into the conversation with Police Scotland is we, we plead cases for members and try and demonstrate the other side to a member. So they, they might see an individual set of circumstances, an individual event that's gone badly wrong for a member. It could be a, a marital breakup, spurious allegations, whatever, a medical issue, maybe a mental health issue. We, we do our very, very best, and we often do it quite successfully, to uh, act as an advocate for a member, bringing forward the good news story against the bad news story that has, has presented itself to the police. So whatever you do out there, join a shooting organisation. Basque, SACS, Scottish Gamekeepers, NGO, NRA, whatever. Get yourself involved in your organisation. See if you can actually help them do the work that they do. Get involved in the actual running of the organisation too if you can. But very much listen to what they say in terms of the advice given. We are there to support you. The police are not your enemy. They have a job to do. We are not your enemy either. We have a job to do to protect your rights to go shooting, protect you as an individual. Listen to what we say in terms of the advice that we give, and you will hopefully keep your certificate for many years in the future. I am tired of people shooting for a very, very long time, losing certificates that they've had for a long time through silly reasons. That should never have happened. Fraser, if we just uh, go on just to briefly talk about drink driving specifically um, as a reason for losing uh, your, your certificates. Why, why is that the case? Why, why is there con the connection between the two? Okay, there's a stated case which uh, equates uh, or which is kind of gives an, an indication that if someone is willing to drive whilst they're over the legal limit, uh, or the prescribed limits, then that can be equated in relation to their attitude to public safety, which can then be equated in then relation to their use of firearms, because it's all about public safety and the peace. Now, in relation to drink driving specifically, the analogy I would use is that if someone walks down a hallway, right, they pick up a set of keys. If they turn left, they can go out to their, their driveway or their car park or where they park their car and go and open up a locked box, get into that locked box, start it up, put it in gear, all the mechanics which we have to do, press down the clutch, take the handbrake off, steer and stuff like that, and then drive down the road, and then if they've got a drink in them, and lo and behold, they're involved in a fatal accident, and they kill somebody, or themselves. They go down the same corridor, and they turn right instead of turning left, but they've picked up a set of keys. They go into a locked box, they're drunk, and they go and pick up a firearm. It's exactly the same analogy, and I would suggest in relation to uh, their attitude to public safety they will be putting other people potentially at risk. And if you drive a car, you are more likely to kill somebody or be involved in a serious road accident which will impact upon someone's life for the rest of their days. The police deal with that daily. In relation to, again, with the backing of the courts, eh, that if you walk down that corridor and you go into your gun cabinet and you pick up a gun and you're drunk, then the danger to public safety is there not only to the wider public, but also to yourself. So therefore, that's the equation. And the Firearms Act, both 30A and 30C, the riders at the bottom of that are, is there a danger to public safety or the peace? And that's where we are. We deal with every case and its merits, 
But however, that would be the analogy that I would use in relation to why if you get done for drunk driving, would it, it doesn't automatically fall, but however, why would it impact upon your suitability to have a firearm? And at what point, having been caught drink driving, would you lose your firearm certificate? Probably the police would be out the next day to pick up your gun once you're released from custody because, again, when they check you out, there'll be a marker saying firearm certificate holder or shotgun certificate holder, and we'd probably be looking to remove your guns. Now, I understand that maybe in legacy forces that was maybe not the practice, but, however, it is a practice now, and... When someone is reported for something, then there's electronic means by which we are notified, and then if the guns already haven't been removed, it's like, go and make sure the guns have been removed. Because there are then a follow-on. You know, if someone's drunk driving, do they have a longer-term issue with alcohol? So therefore, we contact the GP and say, is there any concerns here in relation to uh, alcohol misuse or alcohol abuse, substance misuse? If that person then loses their driving license, they then get their driving license back, mm-hmm. does it then follow that you get your firearms and shotgun license back? If you are revoked, you can apply the next day. Right? If I send you a letter, technically, right, you could apply the next day for a firearm and shotgun certificate. The reasons will still be there mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in respect of... Do you have a substance misuse problem? Is there particular issues in relation to alcohol or whatever? Uh, the, I think generally, um, I think generally, if people who are driving whilst drunk will get banned for a year or longer. Uh, I understand that, but however, they may get their certificate back. But however, it's a different set of rules and different set of legislation. But if we've been to a GP who says, "Listen, there's a real issue with, with alcohol misuse here." or substance misuse here, then that would go until we go and speak to the doctor uh, and say, uh, is there any further indication in relation to that? So it doesn't automatically that, well, if they're going to let you drive a car again, why are they not going to let you have a gun? Hmm. So these are, they're all individual cases. They all have their individual circumstances. But, and as you would expect me to say, don't drive when you've had a drink. And I mean, again, from and to kind of reinforce that message, when the uh, the Scottish limits went down, mm, what was that, eighteen months ago, two years ago or yeah. so, right? When, whenever that happened, I contacted all the shooting organisations and said, "Listen, going to make yourself, going to make your members aware, because I'm aware that there'll be a culture of, you know, right, we're stopping for livingsies or whatever, and the hip flask comes out and stuff like that. Don't go there, right? Uh, be very careful what you do. Have a nominated driver." Guns and alcohol generally don't go anywhere or excessive alcohol, but however, that's not to stop the that's not to stop the, the the small nip or whatever, right? But if it's going to impair your judgment, going to impair your 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 suitability to have a firearm, just don't go there, please. Alex, do you have anything to add to that part of the discussion? Yeah, I mean, you can't make sweeping assumptions on these uh, matters. And, and like Fraser said, every case on its merits. And we deal with, in terms of drink driving, a wide variety of circumstances, um, s- some extremely serious with other uh, attendant issues. Um, and drink driving is just one of the matters that are of concern to the police. But the, the principle that we're concerned about here is the fact that a, a, a otherwise law-abiding person, not been in trouble before, can have their certificates revoked and yet get their driving license back and the most dangerous thing we can do I think in our normal lives is driving on the road as a threat to others and others as a threat to us 
So if you can get your driving license back, go back on the roads and be a potential threat to others and yet not get your certificates back, that doesn't tie in with my sense of fair play. I understand what the police are doing. I understand that they have to take a very strong approach to risk management in this. But there's also that balance between risk aversion and risk management itself. I think Police Scotland has a good um, decision-making matrix in terms of that. I think they've never been quite as transparent as they are now, and I do appreciate that. But I think that there may be a way forward here. What we would suggest is some form of... where circumstances are less serious. Not to say that drink driving is not serious, and I have personally lost a couple of friends um, due to drink drivers. It's something that is socially absolutely unacceptable. But in terms of lesser offences... The context is maybe not quite as serious as, uh, as something else could be. There may be potential for a remedial course of some kind, both in terms of social responsibility, alcohol awareness and shooting itself. And that's something I, I'd be quite interested to chat to Fraser about going forward, if we have time, to put something together where somebody can go along for a, a, a day course, a couple of day course, that grips them in terms of what they've done wrong and they are then given an opportunity, to a rope, a rope rather, to hang themselves with. And if they do something wrong again in the future, then that's their comeuppance. Okay. Yeah, sorry, Fraser, carry on. I would ask people that, or it would be really nice not to have this discussion, right? Don't give me an excuse to have to consider this. Uh, you just put other people in danger, right? Whether it's, whether it's doing something stupid with a gun or alternatively... Uh, I mean, the kind of classic example I would probably use is shooting low birds, you know, after lunch or whatever, and someone's maybe got a tipple in them, and lo and behold, or something comes out, and it's far too low, and there's beaters in front of you and all that sort of thing. And I'm quite sure people in the shooting community will sit and go, oh, I've seen that, done, I've, I remember that, that time happened, right? Uh, and it's about, don't put us in that position, right? Please, if, if you're going to drive a car, right, do it responsibly, legitimately obey the rules of the road and for goodness sake don't drive when you've got a drink in you because if you do that and you're a shotgun certificate holder then is it going to have us asking you really awkward questions now I remember watching a documentary it was years ago and it was about an English force and I remember a guy he got done for drunk driving and it said in the commentary eh, that and he was a he, he was a, a shotgun or a firearm certificate holder, and it was really impactful. I mean, I can remember it to this day, and it, it happened years ago. Is that going to affect my shotgun certificate? He was more in concerned about a shotgun certificate or firearm certificate than he was for the motor. Now, probably, maybe subconsciously, oh, I'll get my license back in, in twelve months to drive the motor again, but I might not. Whether he knew that or not, I might not get my certificate back for some time. My plea is, don't put us in that position. Right? You're just causing danger to everybody else. It could be someone who you knock down, who you know, or whatever. Please, please don't do it. Andy, I imagine you'll, you'll echo pretty much all of that. Definitely. I think it's, it's got to be aware. There's nearly 52,000 certificate holders, mm -hmm. and this is a tiny, tiny minority of them. But like every, every walk of life, the minority will take up the majority of both Fraser's time, Alex's time, and my own time. It's such a minority because everyone else knows it is unacceptable. And it's as simple as that. Yep, so the bottom line of that is uh, don't drink and drive as everybody should know. And uh, it will impact you having and holding your certificates. Yep. Moving on from that to firearm safety courses. Now, uh, most people will be aware there are 
um, firearms courses run in conjunction with the British Deer Society, um, which test your, your marksmanship and also your knowledge on the species that you're hunting. But that's pretty much all we really have in this country. Fraser, would you like to see more? Would you like to see something in existence that would take people through more of a, a sort of a training when they hold either firearms or shotguns? I think it's I think it's a I think it's a good idea if you were to if you're to I'm quite sure if we were to invent all this situation again, we would probably ask people to do that. But uh, I, I would add that with a caveat in relation to who's going where's the finance going to come for that? You know, would you want certificate holders to pay for that themselves? And I know the uh, the traumatic debate there was about certificates going up and the prices going up and so on, and, and acutely aware of the the pros or the arguments for and against that. And uh, I, we've got fifty two thousand certificate holders at this time. A large number of them will have been that safety will have been ingrained into them. Going back to what I think Andy and I have both said, there's only a small number of people who actually cause us concern. The vast majority of them are responsible. They know how to use a firearm and know how to... I mean, my own personal circumstances, I'm quite sure I'm reflective of a large per portion of the game a, a shooting fraternity is that your dad or your a relative said, this is it, gun points to heaven or hell, it never points anywhere else, you know. Uh, safety is paramount, you know, if there's any doubt, it doesn't get shot, you know, what is it the poem says, for all the, the pheasants ever bred, doesn't it? it's not worth one man dead, right? So, uh, I can I can see the merits, I can see the logical merits to have a course, I'm not sure that there would be the will over the wider will within a shooting community for that, I... It's maybe not my place to say that. It's maybe it's it's probably worth a conversation. It would be a conversation probably at the British Shooting Sports Council with the shooting organisation, Felweg practitioners meeting, and then feed that into the system because that goes right into the Home Office and the police and so on to have that conversation. Is it worthwhile having that conversation? Yes, without a shadow of a doubt. Personally speaking, and I would emphasise that. Personally speaking, I think there would be there'd be a journey to go on it. Uh, and I wouldn't want to add further comment in relation to that from a Police Scotland perspective. Uh, I think, yeah, logically it would be a good idea, but I think it would have a bit of a journey to go. Alex, it seems it seems like a, you know, a sensible suggestion that everybody should have some sort of formal training. I, I guess the what could happen is you have someone who doesn't know a great deal but fulfills the criteria and they have access and they, you know, they can go to a shooting range and so they can have a firearms or a, a shotgun certificate but not necessarily the, the right training. And I, I'd never be an advocate for putting more barriers for entry for people to start shooting because it's something I love and I'd, I would never want to discourage people by adding another form of, uh, of training that you would have to pass to get a shotgun certificate. But what is your view on, on having other forms of training? Well, we support any kind of voluntary training. We do not support mandatory training for uh, firearms. Um, my view is that as much informal tuition as possible, um, grandfather training, uncle training is good, but we do have a generation of shooters coming in that don't have access to that, sadly. 
And that's up to the shooting organizations, in my view, then, to provide a cost price or, or free courses for them to, to go along and enjoy. Have a barbecue, meet some nice people, but, and then learn the rudiments, the basics of the firearms that you've applied for, be it an, an air gun or, or a rifle or a shotgun. Um, something we're very keen at SACS to get involved in. Forever we've been doing so much of the reactive work, member cases, supporting members in difficult times, kicking the shins of the big coppers and trying to find meaningful ways forward for our members. But what I'd like to do going forward is really turn that investment around into something a bit more proactive. And if we can bring in courses that are or educational days, educational events rather than courses, that are informal not man- man- mandatory, that are um, a-, a call to better practice and just a-, a start point for information for somebody joining the shooting community, then I think that's a great way forward. So watch this space. We're very keen on doing it. Bass has been doing it for a long time. We've got some fantastic stuff going on with ladies' courses and that kind of thing. We've started doing some ladies' introduction events. I, I like to do the same now for, for, for younger shooters and get a younger generation involved in shooting. Um, and the, some of them might not come from a shooting family, so they have to start somewhere. And it's our responsibility as a community to try and sow the seeds of best practice going forward. So you, you see it as training courses as an encouragement and a, almost a stepping stone, actually, into the, the world of, of shooting and responsible ownership. Yeah, and, and if you go along to a course, you might have a try at something you didn't think of doing before, clay pigeon shooting, Olympic trap shooting. I've been shooting an air gun since I was a, a wee laddie, um, but some might say I'm still a wee laddie. <laughs> but, um, we know the, that's true. Yeah, but uh, the... HFT shoot last weekend, the Hunter Field um, a, a test shoot last weekend, was great fun. I'd never shot an air gun competitively. For me to turn up with my old Webley Exocet 2.2 and a four-power Nikko scope full of water, it wasn't quite the best tool for that purpose. But it, it taught me a lot about my own shooting, and I tried a, a shooting discipline I hadn't tried before, and it was really good fun. I, I think, I mean, I, again, and listening to Alec there... The shooting organisations have got a huge part to play in relation to that and the shooting community themselves. Uh, I think people very often look at the authorities to deal with this. Uh, I'm not sure that the authorities are best placed to deal with that. Uh, again, I'll use the word mandatory and so on, and once you've got the authorities involved, it can be very come, it can very often come like that. I think the shooting organisations do provide good courses, and I think that does it does it influence the police in relation to that someone's been in a DSC1, DSC2, and people can evidence their responsibility, then yes, it's a big tick box. You know, it's like, it's a question we ask, you know, are you a member of a shooting organisation or whatever? Because that generally reflects, again, an enthusiasm and an understanding, and uh, the shooting organisations are a great tool for us to use in relation to partnership working to get a message out to say, well, I mean, here we're sitting around the table having an conversation in relation to a podcast which is going to go out and hopefully advise many, many people in relation to what we think and what you think and how we all work together and can meet in, in the middle. No, that's fantastic. Um, Alex, if I can just come back to you uh, to talk about semi- semi-automatic guns. Now, this is uh, was a topic of discussion in recent months coming out of the EU. We know of the, the tragic circumstances that that discussion started. Could you just put a, a little bit of flesh on that for us? 
and just explain how that might or will impact us here in the UK. Okay, so we currently have the outcome of the EU firearms uh, uh, directive coming up towards the end of this year. That's going through amendment stages, over 800 amendments, all very complicated. And we've also had the EU referendum. So the UK is, uh, as things currently stand, leaving um, the EU. However, the firearms directive changes. The amendments will come into force before we exit. And it's likely that there will be points in UK legislation that will then be um, uh, compliant with the firearms directive, the policing and crime bill and a few other things. One area that really gripped the European-wide shooting organisations was the um, opportunity um, taken by the uh, European Commission, uh, that's where it started from, to remove semi-automatic firearms from civilian sporting use uh, and possession. Now, we've been fighting this really, really hard at a European level. The British Shooting Sports Council has done fantastic work to um, advocate the safe and responsible possession of this class of firearm. I think there's a principle here. I think the principle is, in terms of um, certification, of, of licensing of firearms, is that we need to look at the people, the human element, more than the technical element. Whether something is um, semi-automatic or manually operated or single shot or whatever should really be neither here nor there. If the person that owns it, possesses it, and uses it is a competent, safe person, is a suitable person to have that, then that's where it should stop. Now, clearly there's a limit there in terms of you wouldn't want somebody to apply for an RPG-7 anti-tank weapon system. But in terms of normal sporting firearms, I think we need to move away from the technical issues. Um, The 2-2 rimfires issue was... um, a bit of a problem for us at EU level, we're hoping that that's now been addressed. Uh, clearly, a 2-2 semi-automatic uh, rifle has a useful purpose in terms of pest control. It's a very useful tool. Um, and we want to make sure that stays. There's an issue just now in terms of um, large capacity magazines beyond 10 shots. It's something we're currently trying to address at the European level, and we're hopeful that that will have a positive outcome as well. So we have to wait for that uh, to, to be um, uh, decided. But the analogy that we often look at here is um, regardless of the rifles or the shotguns that you use, it's no different to somebody walking onto a golfing green with a bag full of golf clubs uh, with different purposes. Your putter has a different purpose to your driver. You choose that tool for a specific task and you um, undertake that task safely and effectively in whatever uh, activity you're undertaking. And that's an analogy that we've raised in a number of levels. It's been accepted by many of the MEPs we've spoken with on a personal level. They get to understand why people need to have, rather than just having one rifle and one shotgun, why they want to have a couple of 2-2 rifles for different purposes, an FECA rifle, a 270 rifle for deer, and three or four shotguns for different disciplines. So the, the fact that people are certificated at all is, is a human thing. Whether they're certificated to have one firearm or six or seven firearms should be neither here nor there. Fraser, if I could just bring you in on that and where we currently stand with uh, the owning of semi-automatic. Sure, it's really, really simple. See if you've got a good reason and you're allowed to have it, where you'll get it. Right, Uh, I'm acutely conscious here that we don't make laws. Right, that's for the legislature to decide. We, the police, the role of the police is just enforce the legislation 
if the legislation comes out and says that these weapons are being banned and so on, then we will react to that accordingly and plan accordingly. I, my, the legislation is quite clear. If you've got good reason to have that, a, a specific type of weapon or gun, then you will get that as long as there's no reasons for you not to have it, i.e. you don't have a good reason. And that very often comes down to same with ammunition levels, it's the same with types of firearms. If you can come to the police with a good reason to say why you should have that, eh, don't get me wrong, if it's obscure or we don't think you should have or you don't have a good reason to have a particular weapon or even that conversation, we will ask you about it. We will be professionally curious. I would expect police officers to be professionally curious. But we will ask you, and if after an investigation it's found that, yeah, that person does have a good reason to have that firearm, then hee-ho, uh, there'll be a certificate issued with that authority for it. Or alternatively, if, no, we're not convinced about this, uh, we've got quite a strong view in relation to that particular thing, then uh, the variation or the certificate will not be accepted and there's a right of an appeal in relation to that. Uh, so it just comes down to good reason and that's what we... It's, it's, it's what legislation says, so therefore we will deal with that and we'll just deal with legislation. I understand about the EU directive and so on and what its uh, intentions are in the future and I understand there's conversations going on between the shooting organisations and the Home Office and so on to advise the British position in relation to that, but we will wait and see what the legislation says at the end of it. Yeah, and then you will, you will have to enforce that because that's yes. not a discussion that you yourselves as Police Scotland are having. No. Certainly, with regards to the training that the firearms inquiry officers receive, the onus is on the individual. They do uh, get a significant part on weapon and weapon handling, safe handling, such like, but the onus is on the individual, the good reason and the suitability of the individual. Uh, because as Alex says, I could give a weapon to one person and they're safe and give the weapon to someone else and they're not. Alex, do you have anything else to say on that just before we move on to uh, gun security? I think um, I, I'll just quote the National Ballistics Intelligence Service on a comment that was made at a meeting that we were at uh, towards the end of last year. Um, the comment was this, we should focus on capability, not on what something looks like. Two two semi-automatic rimfires and semi-automatic shotguns do not feature in gun crime and we have no issue with them. We support that. So the drive within the European Commission to uh, ban, outlaw, further restrict various types of firearm natures we think is inappropriate, disproportionate. We're standing against it with our partners in Europe and in, in the British Shooting Sports Council. And in terms of the uh, public safety in regards to firearms ownership, totally and utterly irrelevant. Well, thank you very much for tuning in to the roughly first hour and a half of the show. Now, just download the next show straight away and get stuck into the next hour and a half of this uh, very informative show. Yep, there's not really a great deal else to, to say. The other one's already there, waiting for you to download. In two weeks' time, we'll be bringing you a whole new topic with a whole new guest. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. <laughs>